What's up, guys? Welcome to the podcast. Today, I got a good buddy of mine, Sebi. Uh, before we get into the podcast, we're going to go and talk to our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, guys, I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually start solar with nothing up front, nothing down. My name is Johnny Garza. I'm with the McAllen Valley Roofing and Solar LLC. I'm the acting solar specialist here, and I'm here to make you aware of the incentives that we have. To give you an example, I had a customer come in and they wanted a roof. The roof was going to cost twelve dollars to $14,000. And I offered them the choice of going solar. They said they were thinking about it, they just didn't know how to go about it. Said simply just give me your, your light bill and I'll go off of the, the usage that you've been using already in your home so I can make the system big enough to sustain your home. I also told them that I can include the roof, they wouldn't have to give me anything down. They can keep the money in the bank and I could finance it all together. Payment was literally the same or a little bit more than what they were paying for light. We have a 30 year warranty on the system and the marksmanship of the installation. So the sustainability of the system, if anything happens, for example, if we go on the roof and we damage a roof, our warranty covers that repair. So just call the number down below and Dana will answer and take care of you just like family. All right, guys, what's going on? We're back with Sebi. Uh, Sebi, in case people don't know who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself and what you do, what your role is. Of course. Uh, you know, I'm a longstanding McAllen resident. Uh, my father is a physician here in the area, and I wasn't born here. I was born in Baltimore, but I was born in 1980, and my father moved here in 1982. So basically consider myself, uh, you know, a McAllen native. I uh, went to school here, and then I went to an undergrad in St. Edwards, where okay. I got my undergrad in computer, computer information systems. And, you know, upon moving back, uh, I've primarily, my main industry has really been banking. I was in banking for 15 years, recently left about nine, 10 months ago. Now I'm in the software tech startup phase. Which is interesting. We were talking about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pick your brain about that. We'll get into that for a little <laughs> bit. Uh, you know, and kind of working among some of my good friends on, on our own little startup. And, you know, I've always been a small business owner. I've had different businesses throughout the years that have come and gone uh, and just have been a big part of McAllen. And many don't know, also for the last two years, I've been uh, elected as a city commissioner for District 5 for the city of McAllen. So what exactly does a city commissioner do? What, what, what does that entail? Yeah, of course. I mean, a city commissioner is basically your city council. Okay. Uh, McAllen's old charter labeled us commissioners. For most cities, people know them as council members. But... We make all the decisions regarding the direction of the city's strategic planning. Okay. And not only that, we also make the final decisions on the city's budget. So there's a lot of power in the hands of the commission and the mayor in that they get to direct where funds will go, what projects will be started, and what type of planning you're going to look for in the future. On top of that, McCown's got a single-member district structure. And what that entails us to do is really become... I would say personable liaisons to the members of our community okay. Uh, because we serve as the conduit from the resident to city hall, right? A lot of people, you know, it's hard to call city management or hard to call certain departments or people experience different types of frustrations. And at that point is when they'll reach out to their commissioner and let them know the problem that they might be having. It could be small things. They could literally from, you know, my trash can lid is broken. I don't know what to do to flooding on the street towards issues with a neighbor 
we get all types of calls and, you know, we usually try to direct them or help kind of get them solved. Yeah. What's interesting about you is what I like is that when somebody posts something on social media that isn't correct, you'll jump <laughs> in and you'll correct them. That's what I love about it because you know, you know what's going on is like, all right, this stops here, man. Yeah. But let me ask you this. What do you feel about social media in a world where everybody has something to say and they can post it freely? Yeah, of course. I mean, you can't deny that social media is empowering, right? It's empowering as an elected official because I get to reach more people at the same time with less effort. And just on the tail, on the opposite end of that, you're going to have people who can also have the same reach with either nefarious means or misinformation. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you've got to rely on everyone to use their best judgment, understand social media for what it is, take a lot of it with a grain of salt, but it's got a tremendous impact not only on business, on being able to reach the public and on good use, good cause, right? Yeah. I always look towards social media. I know we've got all the, usually we focus on the negatives about it, but you've got to focus on the positive aspects about it and contribute to those means, yeah. right? Uh, so I tell people, I say, on social media, don't just follow, you know, pages that don't provide any benefit to you, right? Follow things that, that lead you to your passion, Follow things that allow you to learn. Follow, you know, other people that are moving in a direction that you want to move into. And then I always tell people, follow pages of information, right? Yeah. So I'm always trying to get people to either follow the city's page or other city pages, right? Because you want to be constantly informed about either what's going on or events, social activities, or in general, just knowledge. Sometimes I feel like those city pages are, man, it's like, it's like comedy hour in some of them. Man. Oh, of course, of course. And it's usually the same, uh, the same people coming back to it, right? It's interesting. Yeah. It, I, I, that's what I love about this, this bigger city here is that everybody has uh, an opinion about something. Of course. It's not necessarily always right, but it is entertaining. And I'm sure, I'm sure it occurs in every community, right? Absolutely. Uh, we definitely like to think of ourselves as unique, and I think we have the attributes that make us unique. But when it comes to social media, I think every every uh, city or group has the same headaches and struggles as well as the same benefits. Let me ask you this on, on a more serious note. Um, when everybody's going through the pandemic, right, and we saw 100,000 businesses close throughout the United States, what specific insight did you see from from being the city commissioner? What did you see that was very prevalence going on? Yeah, I mean, it was very difficult. And the, I think the first thing people do is they seek either local government or local help. Uh, and at the same time, the city itself, with the unknowns, you know, when the pandemic first hit, especially in the first three or four months, there's a tremendous amount of unknown. And the city had to quickly adjust to protect the services when we want to ensure that we continue to provide the same services to our residents. But we had to look at how it was going to affect our ability to cover and pay for those services. And so I think it, from the city standpoint, it forced us to look at strategic planning, how we do the budget, and how we look towards the future in a very different manner. Um, but the, right after that, the first thing we started to really think about is how do we become more involved and how far how much involvement should a local municipality and its government have in helping a small business, yeah. right? Or helping, um, you know, a resident or helping a homeowner or someone who rents because you've got a lot of segments of the population, right? You've got people who are renting, who are worried about paying rent. 
you have homeowners who are worried about property tax and paying their mortgage. Business owners, of course, small business is the backbone of McAllen. You know, they provide the sales tax, which is a third or if not a little bit more of our total revenue source. But, the, you know, the amount of revenue generated from the small business owner realistically get per capita on the population of McAllen, the small business owners are a very small percentage of people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how much do you allocate to each subset in each group? And how do you establish programs that make sense to benefit the in, entire tax population? Yeah, it, it was a very interesting time, man. I, I know a lot of people that lost businesses, and man, it's so heartache. You know? Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, whatever, whenever I hear where I talk to people out of McAllen, right, they're always like, no, no, McAllen is is pro-big business. They're not pro-small business. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think it's a struggle. McAllen is definitely pro-business as a whole. Um, when, when you compare, I think, the efforts – of the economic development corporations of the different cities, mm-hmm. McAllen's got a significantly larger budget, right? Um, McAllen looks at really three factors when it comes to economic development. Is it unique and new to the region within a certain mile radius, right? Are you bringing in something that no one else has, hasn't been seen, or is going to be a destination, right? Because the goal is to get people to come to McAllen, spend their dollars in McAllen, and so you've got to be a destination. So if you're, you know, I know a lot of people, I'm opening up a restaurant and I'm going to have my own menu, but there are restaurants all over. While you might be a destination, the draw might not be large enough to incentivize. And, you know, I think, so that, that's one of the main factors. If you've got to be, you've got to be unique and you've got to be a destination. Uh, the next thing they look at are job creation and how many jobs you'll create and what type of economic impact that'll have for the region. The third is sales tax, because realistically, the generation of sales tax is what's truly going to repay, uh, let's say, an incentive or, or a, you know, a, an agreement with that that individual of whether we should do it or not. I got you. And, um, you know, I think McCown, you know, has is conservative in the way they analyze, conservative in its budget, but we're also very smart, and we want to ensure that we, we we're not risking the taxpayer dollars to a point where it's a loss, right? So you might see a business, you know, there's been a lot of businesses in surrounding communities that have gotten incentives. And I think McAllen gets a little bit of flack for maybe not getting it, but realize that it's still available to McAllen residents, right? We're one region and our competition realistically isn't far Edinburgh mission, right? That's the friendly competition. Our real competition is San Antonio, Laredo, uh, some of those communities. Okay. Those are the ones that we're focused on drawing, uh, manufacturing, bringing do- bringing investment dollars into the community that aren't already here. And so we want to make sure that we're really competing against those communities. And you know, some of the some of the business have gone to local municipalities in the past through incentives. McAllen had a shot at almost every single one of those, but they're going to probably offer something. And as soon as it turns red for the city, you know, they're going to let it go. We've got to make sure that the return is there for the taxpayer. We see some of those businesses for year, year after year after year, uh, but they're coming at a loss to those communities. Hmm. And so those taxpayers are really paying for that to the benefit of us who still get to utilize it. Right. I get you. Okay. When, when you're sitting in these meetings with like these big companies, what does that conversation sound like? Like, what are they looking for specifically? And then how do you all interact together? 
So the surprisingly, the hardest thing is workforce. Workforce, workforce, workforce. That's what they need. Uh, that's why McCown has a really strong relationship with South Texas College and its training uh, development. And the majority of the incentives we give are based on the number of employees that get trained and pushed into the manufacturing facilities. Uh, because usually labor workforce, the shortage and the availability of engineers, uh, machinists, tech shops, high level skill jobs mm-hmm. are very difficult to come by. And if you don't try to foster that education and try to promote that, uh, you know, you can attract the biggest company, but if they can't get the labor, uh, it's, it's only going to, they're either going to turn around and go or they're not going to invest in the area. Interesting. And you've got to look, the, these, these companies are making significant investments. So sometimes getting the, the conversation starts and by the time they get here, it's three, four, five years later, wow. you know, because they're investing on the low end, 15 to $18 million typically in capital investment. Uh, and on the high end, 50 to $80 million. Wow. And they don't make those decisions lightly, right? It's not just like, oh, that place, that site looks great. Right. Let's build a facility, put a bunch of machines in there and hope for the best. No, they, they do their due diligence and they're, they're very particular. And, uh, you know, they, they do, they do very, very detailed work Let me when, ask you, when they're picking a site. How, how do, what, what does that detailed work look like? Like, is it like a surveying? What does it, what does that entail? I mean, beyond the real estate, they're looking at the proximity to airport and its capacity. They're looking at the proximity toward to rail, uh, and the routes that they can go from there. They're looking at the, at the, uh, highways and basically where they're able to go from there. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of advantages here. Once we get companies to look down here, you know, we show them that the cost, there's a lot of companies that are on the on the West Coast in California because that's where the ships come in, uh, you know, and so they, they, they set up shop there. But the cost of being in California is significantly greater mm-hmm. than the cost of being down here on the border, right? And we start t- showing them the routes where they can pull into ports throughout Mexico. And those ports are only two, three hours away from the Rio Grande Valley. Versus, yeah. And when we show them sort of uh, the distance from what, even though South Texas, you've got to go all the way up north, right? The distance from South Texas to the West Coast and the distance from South Texas to the East Coast, it's surprisingly uh, a lot more budget-friendly than what they're usually doing, which is driving all the way from the West Coast to the East Coast. Because our population in our nation is not evenly distributed right throughout the the united states the majority of the population the majority of goods are surprisingly moving towards the east so when you show them look at the amount of money you guys are spending to go from the tip of the west coast and moving 70 percent of your goods to the east coast or you know to the eastern part of the united states uh and say we'll cut that distance in half by putting you down here even though you've got to drive through texas you take care of the texas and mid midwest market and you're still able to move east and save a lot of money. Huh. So they're looking at really long-term trajectories of where supply chains are going. Uh, they've got to constantly analyze regulations, but not regulations only in the United States with things like USMCA and U.S. laws. They've got to analyze what's happening in China, what's happening in uh, Africa, what's happening in South America, uh, because their supply chain is global. Yeah. Uh, it's no longer isolated to a single nation. So they're analyzing parameters that are just way beyond things that we sometimes don't have data on or, or need to look at. And you try to sell the area and the region on its benefits. And, you know, if you look at our trade zone, the foreign trade zone, and what we've got down here, 
it's obviously been highly successful. Yeah. And I think it's going to continue to be. I think USMCA is going to help it dramatically. And I think we're going to start to see even more movement here as China starts to clamp down. Their labor force cost is rising. Um, you know, when you had a disruption in, you know, with the tariffs and everything, and you have problems with, with ships and container ships that take forever, there's companies, the first thing they stressed, you know, they never had that disruption before. So the first thing they stressed is we need to be able to have sort of a, a, a buffer of, of supply chain within North and South America to be able to move up and down when we've got that disruption across the oceans. Yeah. Right? And what's interesting about that is, is that that happened with the computer chips. Like exactly. there's a huge shortage of them yeah. and that, that literally disrupted everything, man. It disrupts everything. You'd, you'd be surprised that every single damn thing has computer chips in yeah, it. And it. It's happening with all types of raw goods. Right. And that affects consumer goods, right? You have, you have, backups of months and months for furniture right people uh, are like furniture's backed up yes furniture's backed up right uh you know we've got the jc penny and mccallum that's going to be reopening and they they stressed how they were they were happy that they still had their stands from when they had closed due to the hurricane hannah mm-hmm. because they say all the new stores opening across the u.s can't even find the racks to put clothes on right the things that Damn. we don't even think yeah, about yeah, yeah. and the manufacturing of just metal racks that hold hangers is backed up interesting that's crazy let me ask you this uh california i was there a few years ago man and it it was uh it was a very iffy (laughs) sketchy place that i was at but uh it's a beautiful place a ton of homeless people they're shipping them all to Austin now, and a bunch of people are moving to Austin. <laughs> Have you been to Austin lately? I haven't been in about a year. Dude, I was there last uh, a few months ago, and and I think the next day they were putting into effect what they were going to start kicking out the homeless people. Yeah. We went by tons of homeless people, man. They did ravage that whole area, man. What do you think about that? Like like the homeless population in Austin? Do you think that could ever come here? It could as our city grows, um, but those homeless populations are going to follow realistically, I think, an environment where they have a little bit of sanctuary, which is what California, I think, Austin provided for a, for a period of time and yeah. realized that it doesn't help solve the problem and it only grows it. Uh, and it becomes difficult, right, because it's, a, it's that dichotomy between humanitarian needs and, you know, servicing the ones that are most in need compared to protecting the city and ensuring sort of the cleanliness and environment that the rest of the taxpayers truly pay for. Uh, You know, but it's difficult. Could it, I don't think it could happen down here anytime soon. I think we'd have to be double or triple the size. Uh, You know, they're also, I think homeless populations reside in much larger cities, populations, half million, half million plus. Uh, And that's because, you know, when it comes to trying to get, resources you you have a population that that allows them to target more people in a shorter span of time and hopefully you know whether it's panhandling or any other method right they're able yeah. to get it uh but I was, I was in los angeles just a month ago and just driving through it you know i hadn't seen anything like that uh in a long time i'd seen pictures but you yeah, know when you're got, there in person it's, it's it's pretty uh it's pretty crazy man yeah i mean it, it to some extent, if you if you create the environment where that that can occur, it's going to occur. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's difficult. But you know, I think also California weather, Austin weather, are a lot better than 
the Rio Grande Valley's <laughs> weather, so I, I don't see a lot of people making their way down here. Another thing is those damn mosquitoes, dude. Oh, my. <laughs> they're, like, hovering outside. They're waiting for me to go outside. <laughs> the most calls I've gotten in the last about week and a half have been about mosquitoes. About mosquitoes. And for that many people to pick up the phone and call their commissioner on something that you would think is trivial. Yeah. I've never gotten a call on a mosquito before in the last two weeks. Shows what a crazy just i guess attack we've had of mosquitoes <laughs> uh the city of mccallum sprayed four times and we've got to be real careful with uh, the chemicals that we're using right so i think they've got to take a little bit of a break before they go back out code enforcement has been out in force just siding and knocking on doors on every weedy or uh high grass lot uh trying to get those mitigated anything over four feet we're typically able to cut right away and add a mowing lean but even that got backed up. We've had to use a lot of subcontractors to get the amount oh. of weedy lots taken care of. We had, at one point, we had a, a little bit of a backlog or a reported amount over 200. Wow. And we finally caught up. Uh, now we're trying to ensure that people cut their grass, get rid of standing water. So as much as they demand from the city, we ask as much sort of help from the community, right? Back, yeah. Collectively, we're going to be able to get rid of it a lot faster than uh just relying on city workers. Yeah. It's crazy, man. I never experienced mosquitoes like that. No, and I was no telling my has. wife, I was like, man, what is going yeah. on? And, you know, I think that some of the other cities have sprayed yeah. occasionally, but not to the level McAllen has. Uh, you know, we've got great resources, but, you know, mosquitoes don't know borders. So yeah. They, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. So they cross right over as soon as they see a clean environment. <laughs> All right, guys. With that being said, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick little break. and it's all across our country and the RGV is a hot spot for it. I'm not talking about COVID, I am talking about bad credit. Don't let bad credit rob you of your dreams, your dreams of a nice home, of a nice car. Don't let bad credit rob you of tens of thousands of dollars of high interest payments over your lifetime. Get it fixed, give us a call, Beretta Credit Repair. We're right here in the RGV, 956-313-7957. Give us a call. You'll be glad you did. All right, we are back. So, Sebi, I appreciate your time, man, and I appreciate you all for listening. Uh, I want to dive into crypto, man, because it, it was something that I was fascinated with, and, and I bought a bunch of crypto, and then the next month it was tanked, and I was like, oh, man. Who hasn't been there? <laughs> but you have a different journey with, with crypto. You've been doing this for a while, right? A little bit. I mean, we got out of crypto because we. I think I was a victim to the first wave. And so that, that I think, insulates you a little bit. And you see it coming. We saw the same sort of uh, uh, rush, sort of gold rush about it. You see the same sort of pickup on what I would call the um, more standard social media platforms, right? And so it, it was only a matter of time. And, you know, I think a lot of people were able to benefit if they kind of got in and out. Yeah. but. Uh, a little bit of greed gets you in a bad spot. <laughs> it happened to me several years ago in the first wave. And so we had, you know, at one point we had bought a few coins. It seemed like things were going good. And we built a mine. We built a fairly large mine. And uh, 
had been very successful. Unfortunately, we allowed it to continue to compound, thinking we were going to be uh, retired <laughs> in about six months. <laughs> and uh, as, as expected, it all kind of crashed. And crypto mining is a little, not as easy as some people might think. There's a cost to it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that cost at some point surpassed what was being brought in. And so we just kind of shut it down, let it sit. And uh, then the overall crypto market just crashed for years. So we just never turned it back on. I think we eventually sold most of the cards on eBay. Uh, and as this new wave came around, I sort of decided to take a back seat and, uh, you know, try, <laughs> Watch to, everybody try else. to avoid a second punch in the gut. Uh, but no, it's definitely fascinating. I think it's, I think it's here to stay. It's got to find a solidified uh, purpose in yeah. the legitimate markets. And, you know, I think, I think it'll do well. Do you think that it could overtake the U.S. dollar anytime soon? No, it it definitely won't take over any type of national currency. Uh, it would need to be adopted as some type of national currency, and it would have to be adopted by one of the top five nations, right, to have any real impact. Um, you know, because what really keeps the dollar strong is our GDP. And, you know, a, a crypto, I don't think, makes up a thousandth percentage of that, if, if anything, right? And so until you start infiltrating the GDP or becoming a part of that, it's going to be difficult for it to, to kind of be a standard that central banks use it. Um, so I don't, I don't see that occurring, but it'll definitely be heavily utilized. And I think eventually it'll self-stabilize yeah. uh, to where it'll be reliable. It's interesting, man, because I've, I've started following so many crypto gurus uh, like Michael, what's his name, Michael... Shoot, I forget his name. I'll post it in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I was following all these guys, and, and they're gung-ho about it, man. And, and I, I know it's going to happen eventually. Like, it's yeah. just going to bounce right back. But For sure. it's during that time where it's like, it's that low. It's yeah. like, damn it. You can't, man. Do, can't do that daily check on the app. Yeah, I don't, even, I don't even look at my damn phone yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. But talking about, uh, like, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum or the blockchain, you have something very interesting going on in tech. Touch on that because I think it's fascinating. The first time I heard about that was when I was, I'm working with a drone company from Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. And um, this is the first time I was going through the training and they were explaining all this stuff that all the data that they're storing and all, it goes into the cloud and they're using blockchain technology. When you were talking about what you're doing, it's super fascinating. So touch on that, man. No, of course. I mean, when we first got into the crypto, you know, phase, I guess several years ago, that really led into understanding blockchain. And really what we started to see is crypto is sort of the, the fad, uh, unstable fad. And we started to realize that the platform or really the technology that crypto is based on only works because it's actually uh, uh, tremendously useful, right? Which is blockchain. Blockchain is really what makes crypto, what allows crypto to, to work in, in its fashion, right? To basically be able to, trust what you're buying and trust what you're selling uh, and what has increased the value. And so blockchain is, I think, going to be the eventual technology for any type of transaction or contract. Uh, I think at some point it's likely to really threaten uh, the banking industry unless they adopt it as their sort of method for transferring funds, right? Right now banks use the older ACH that we're all familiar with hearing, right? Check clearing and all mm -hmm. of that. But eventually, you know, with something like blockchain, and we've got big companies, Charles Schwab, JP Morgan, uh, Capital One, they've all got blockchain departments now. And once one of them starts using that, 
as sort of a method for transferring of payments. Maybe, you know, maybe it gets rid of wires, right? And, and the, uh, and the risk with wire, wires, once it's sent, it's gone, right? Or maybe there's ways to blockchain can help protect that and protect the fraud. But blockchain really will be, it's the platform for transactions because it's immutable. It's hundred percent trustworthy and it's recorded yeah. uh, on somebody knows that it's very difficult to hack. Interesting. Yeah, I, I find it. So So you're telling me that eventually banks will all adopt this? I think a, a form of it. I think blockchain technology will either transform or eventually blockchain will be the, the foundation of what banks use for transactions between banks mm-hmm. and between individuals outside of respective banks, right? Uh, because the benefit of blockchain, as you see with crypto, is the send and receive is instant. Yeah. Um, right now with ACH, it's typically overnight on the fastest method or obviously wire, which you have to send in before a certain time and it's there in the afternoon, um, verified by both banks with a lot of legwork on both sides, right? Uh, but, you know, blockchain is instantaneous. And I think the reason we saw the rise of all these small apps for, you know, hey, I, I owe you 10 bucks for a drink or whatever, you know, Venmo, yeah. PayPal, Cash App. Cash App, yeah. What is the biggest benefit of that? Hey, I sent you 10 bucks, you have it. It's peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer and it's instant. Yeah. Uh, but it works. But what most people don't see is that those companies are working on volume because the foundation of that is still the old ACH. So, you know, I send you 10 bucks, you get it right away, but I see it clear from my bank tomorrow. Gotcha. So what the banks are doing is the banks are taking a risk that we don't see as a consumer. Hmm. They're giving us the service and assuming the risk because they're doing it on a massive scale. And that is why you see limits, right? 2,500 bucks per day or whatever the case may be. Because if there weren't limits and you had someone send a million dollars and then the you know they paid the other person that person's clear they got their money and they promised that service but if it didn't clear the next person's bank you know venmo or paypal would be out that money so you could imagine you know because well we we don't see the risk they're taking but there's an underlying risk because what they're doing is they're moving forward in the world of transactions utilizing a more traditional method to get those done and they're insulating us from seeing that Interesting. Uh, but eventually something like blockchain could enable them to pull available funds instantly or verify that funds. And basically what they would be doing is protecting their risk, right? It wouldn't change for us. But now you'd get into large commercial transactions, large worldwide transactions, selling millions, if not billions of dollars instantaneously, right? Damn to each yeah. other or company to company. Uh, right now it's only done between trusted groups right bank to bank um hedge fund to hedge fund whatever the case may be right established relationships but eventually you know blockchain could be the one that that opens that up and mitigates the risk to everyone huh wow that that's that's really good information <laughs> let me ask you so the blockchain that you're using with the tech company now touch on that because you said from seed to table it tracks so yeah so i'm i'm a very small part of a company called grain chain uh, it's probably been in existence close to five years or so. It really was uh, created and founded by three primary guys. Uh, my, the partners I look up to, Alex Macias is our CEO. He's been a longtime friend of mine. And then Jaime Lopez, an attorney, and uh, Fernando Campos out of Miami, who's a longtime friend of uh, Alex and also kind of a, a tech-savvy individual. And so initially, after getting into the crypto world, um, 
one of the partners already had a relationship with a silo operator locally. And he had built him a silo management system, which are very common out there, basically just managing the levels of grain that was in the silo, starting to measure for moisture, starting to uh, provide digital reports, you know, things that he could look up on his phone. And once we understood blockchain, uh, those three guys really started to push the idea of creating a smart contract uh, for far suppliers and providers of, of commodities. Uh, right now, primarily dry goods, sorghum, coffee, beans, grain, things of that nature. And so that, that's really the way it started uh, years ago is kind of building the smart contract system. It was kind of this theory uh, that you could build on the blockchain a contract between a silo operator and a seller, and then obviously eventually to the buyer of the grain. So, you know, the silo is kind of the midpoint. Mm -hmm. And that you could record the contract on the blockchain, all the parties would be on it digitally, and all the parameters that we were tracking with the silo management system could get recorded as part of the contract. Right now, everything is done separately, right? Contracts are, if even sent through email, some of these old farmers are still sending stuff through the mail, right? And uh, it's easy to fudge numbers or change things or it gets lost and... Uh, you know, I think we were trying to trying to update it, but in a way that the, these farmers would trust. And that eventually just led to where we're at today. The company now has a suite of five products that basically follow the entire supply chain of a commodity. And basically from seed all the way to really delivery to its uh, finals. This is, this is so advanced that it tracks the moisture in the area too, right? Yeah, so the the one of the products, Seed Audit, is pretty phenomenal, and it basically is the traceability of the food source, right? So the the large food supply chain traceability is becoming a big thing now. Um, you know, we went through the GMO and organic phase, and we went through a lot of that kind of stuff, but it's moving into traceability, and, and this is really coming from demands of consumers, and, which leads to demands from the buyers. And people want to know where their food is coming from. Yeah. Uh, people want to have a connection to the earth or they want to be, they want to understand, you know, the story of, of their food. And so we track all the way from the plot that the seed is planted in uh, and all the, all the data that is gathered when that seed is planted, right? Uh, from weather conditions to soil condition. And we're able to, we, we even track what, what pesticides are used what chemicals are used to grow it uh, because all that's inputted. So whenever that seed moves on to the next phase from harvest to, you know, put on a truck logistically, all that stays with it. So as soon as a contract is signed and we know that seed is part of that contract, that that data goes and gets attached to it seamlessly without anyone else having to do anything. And the data then follows it through the smart contract all the way to the final buyer. That's awesome, man. (laughs) And it's really big in, in, the coffee market uh, quality of coffee is a big deal, right? Where where they actually need to know the quality. So, do you see this uh, being adopted worldwide? I, I think little by little on a on a smaller scale, um, because it's not a hundred percent needed for the mass market, right? You've got a lot of products that, you know, the the general food supply market is probably let's call it average or subpar, right? They just need to produce a certain yeah. good that can be sold at a cheap price. Or sold into certain markets that quality, you know, or traceability isn't the most important. It's more sustenance. And so, but I think uh, down the road, it's going to be more and more of a demand. 
And eventually probably common practice. Eventually common practice. It's just got to become easy enough and almost... Um, and affordable enough. And affordable enough. Uh, but easy enough for the, for the farmers to do it, right? And so we're using a lot of IoT devices to do the work for them. Yeah. So the IoT devices are picking up all the data, and now you have a standardization of data. Previously, what you would have with... Explain what IoT is, the Internet of Things, before people get lost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Internet of Things is every an Alexa or even an iPad in today's time or any device that kind of connects to the internet that provides functionality. That can even be your dog's uh, collar. Leash. Yeah, collar. Yeah. I mean, it, basically everything today that connects to Wi-Fi or Bluetooth is going to be an IoT, Internet of Things, right? And it's going to provide expanded capability and uh, of, of what it can do for you uh, or what it provides for you. And so a lot of IoT devices are now everything for, you know, moisture readers, water readers, uh, you know, things of that nature that are being put into the fields or the silos. And so now that data just gets put in daily automatically uh, rather than having to be measured by, by, by someone who has to be on staff, you know, who fills out those long list of tabled reports, right? It now gets logged automatically. Yeah. Is that some of those things that are on top of the, uh, the lights up there, the little... The little look like little satellite dishes. I mean, it could be, but I wouldn't think that anything locally already has IoT devices collecting. What's data. interesting is, is I, I joined uh, the Helium network. I don't know if you're familiar with Helium. I'm not. So Helium is going to be. They use the Internet of Things too, which is uh, it, it mines helium coins, and and in turn, it's becoming the people's network, which okay. is going to eventually be like your cell phones and stuff like that. So you mine it, you put a you put up an antenna, and then it mines it for you. Okay. And slowly you're building the people's network from like one location here, then you got another one like two miles away, yeah. and it just goes throughout the basically thing. creating nodes, yeah, which is what blockchain much. does. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's already here. I think the first time I saw it, there was twenty four thousand nodes, and wow. now there's like ninety five thousand in the United States. It's yeah. Going fast. And, and I that, see I see that's where you see technology going to a decentralized point, right? Which is why blockchain is so popular because you don't need this tremendous amount of resource in a in a in a single spot uh, it's decentralized so you're really using the power and of the people of the people right and i think that's where a lot of technology is going to move towards what do you see going on in the next five to ten to twenty years here in mcallen specifically well i think five years is a short period for the city right so we've got a lot probably some of the most aggressive infrastructure work that's going to be done within the city of mcallen we're doing a lot of projects with uh, Precinct 2 and count and the county uh, commissioners as well. So I think the city of McAllen and the region is going to see a tremendous amount of infrastructure and drainage work. Uh, I think those needs are going to be fulfilled in the next five years. I think we're going to see a significant amount of investment, outside investment, uh, in continued manufacturing and logistics and hopefully a little bit of warehousing. Uh, we've gotten a, a large amount of inquiries and it looks like that type of activity is picking up as people start to understand USMCA more, which was just signed last year, which was the, the redraft or the update to NAFTA. Okay. Right? Uh, but it's got a tremendous amount of benefit to the United States because uh, one of the things that the Trump administration did require in that is they increased the percentage of production that had to occur in the United States. Previously, I think it was like 35%. It's now up to like 65%. Oh, okay. And... It's not from scratch. It just means 65% of it has to be manufactured here. So what you have, what you see is foreign trade zones become very uh, lucrative because 
they they provide sort of that shelter where you could have a plant on both sides, but you don't experience the tariff or let's call it the penalty, right, mm-hmm. from either country until it moves beyond that foreign trade zone. But you get but you get the benefits of being in either the U.S. or Mexico, right? And so that that becomes one of the biggest hurdles for for other nations hmm. because as soon as they cross over a good, they're smacked with massive tariffs. Yeah, and so they've got to move it quick, right? It's got to it's got to uh, turn. Uh, compared to if they're able to invest in a foreign trade zone, they're able to move it over and without necessarily already having it sold or moving beyond the foreign trade zone. What do you think about Elon Musk coming to to Boca Chica? Well, I personally see it as a as a positive because whenever it, I can't imagine what's already been invested down there. I would say I don't know, hundred million minimum. Yeah, probably more. <laughs> probably right? more. You make that type of investment, you don't get up and leave. It's very difficult to just get up and leave. So when we talked earlier about the decision-making involved in spending that type of capital, Mm -hmm. it doesn't come lightly. So Elon Musk is here to stay. SpaceX is here to stay. And it's only can continue to grow. While we should, of course, be concerned with any kind of environmental impact or ensuring that the community is protected and not overrun, uh, I think we've got to, I think we've got to, you know, foster it and promote it and start looking towards um, other companies that benefit SpaceX because even McCown's gotten calls for supply chains related to SpaceX. Wow, okay. So SpaceX brings a lot of interest down here, right? You're going to see it's going to benefit everyone's housing market. It's going to benefit the sales tax market. I think I think South Padre Island of all places is going to benefit dramatically because Absolutely. if you've got this influx of a new type of population that comes in with money, comes in from California and likes water, you know, South Padre Island is going to greatly benefit from everything from home sales to probably new towers, uh, you know, to vacations. And I think the whole area is going to benefit. A lot of people think it, it, it comes overnight, but it doesn't. But we're going to look 10 years from now, we're going to look back and SpaceX is going to look so small compared to where I think it's going to be. Well, Starbase is interesting, man, because eventually you'll be able to live out there and just see these yeah. rockets come out like right inside your house. Man. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. It's no, a crazy. destination too, man. That, that, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, before we finish off the podcast, I want to ask you another question. Um, people that are coming into McAllen or new entrepreneurs, and, and I always talk about this because the entrepreneur hustle has really high highs and really low lows. Oh, yes. it's, there's like nothing in between, man. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give young entrepreneurs that are planning on coming into McAllen to start their business here or to start a life here or people from outside, like from San Antonio or Houston, what would you give them advice about? Well, I mean, first that's on the Rio Grande Valley McAllen itself provides tremendous opportunity, right? And I'm speaking more of the region. Um, it really is unique in the sense of you've got a lot of people say the population of 140,000. But McAllen daily is kind of like the Manhattan. McAllen probably has a population of about 250,000 daily, uh-huh. right? And that's because we, most of the people that work in the surrounding cities work in McAllen. Um, you know, a lot of people travel through McAllen to get between the cities. Uh, so it provides a lot of um, exposure. And you've got a city that's got more restaurant permits per capita than Austin, Dallas, or Houston. Right. And that's really because this is where the people, the Rio Grande Valley kind of come into. And so McCown obviously benefits, you know, we can see the benefits of that through city government and the, the overall revenues for the municipality. But, you know, I tell people that the cost of living is still 
fairly low. Relatively cheap. Yeah. The infrastructure is strong enough to create something that you want to do. But, you know, while a lot of people say it's not Austin, San Antonio, or Houston, it's still hyper-competitive. It yeah. all depends on the industry you want to go into, right? But it's definitely hyper-competitive. And what what I think McCown, what we also want to focus on and continue to bring in industry is because we've got to bring in higher-level-paying jobs, right? If we don't have the job market down here, we're never going to get past sort of that, that really hard line of being able to have different amenities or higher level stores because that that average wage or that average sort of household income remains low. So we've got to improve our overall education within the city and we've got to figure out ways to promote higher paying jobs. We've got to get people working here and making more because as people make more, they obviously, their lifestyle improves, they spend more, uh, they want more social activities, they want more amenities provided to them, right? And so, you know, I would I would invite anyone to come over here and and put any ideas to work. I think the city has has become more and more open to new concepts, and you know, I'd I'd like it to shift towards strong support for local business, right? Yeah. And you see that even in Austin, which has every chain possible, mm-hmm. but the entire urban center is all local business, right? The chains are usually along the expressways, yeah, you know, and that's true on the larger perimeters where where they can plant themselves on pad sites in front of a Best Buy and stuff like that. But if you look at those large cities, uh, there's a lot of support for local business. I mean, look at the look at how much Tito's Vodka has blown up, Deep Eddie, you know, uh, Treaty Oak. You look at all these sort of local businesses. I only named alcohol companies, but there's, (laughs) there's a lot of others, right? But Austin has a very good ability to instantly give it a shot right something new and local comes out and people are like let's try it let's do it let's Let's support it and some make it some don't but you know they they, the ones that do make it experience tremendous success and there's nothing better than local success stories so you know i would love for mccallan to have uh you know more and more to be able to brag about as far as what was started here and you know and have the local support behind it right yeah what do you think about the the mentality that you have to leave the Rio Grande Valley to become successful or to make it to, I don't think that's necessarily the case now it's true for certain industries right um, sure if you want to be a stockbroker it's probably not the best market for you uh, you want to be an actor probably not the best market for you uh, there's no doubt that McAllen can't provide everything for everyone right like any other market can't um, but what I would call it for small business or anyone that's looking to sort of do their own thing, I would think McAllen's as good of an environment as any. Uh, I've lived in Austin. I've lived in New York. And, you know, McAllen's where I came back and, and was most successful. So I think it all depends, you know, on what, on what you're able to do, how you're able to expand it. it. It becomes, you know, a little bit, I think they're tricking themselves into thinking that by simply moving, the success will come. Right. Um, the success isn't based on necessarily location, right? Minus outliers of, of industry, right? But talking just in general, mm-hmm. I, I don't think McCown's any worse off than living in Austin. And, uh, you know, that might be a little bit, you know, sometimes the struggle can be frustrating. And so it could be a little bit of bitterness, right? To think like, well, if, if I have access to, to this or I'm in a city like this or, they're more open. 
it might work better. Yeah. You never know. It, it could, but I, I think it's definitely possible in McAllen. Awesome. I'm very positive about McAllen and the Rio Grande Valley. Absolutely, man. I, I think <laughs> the Rio Grande Valley is one of the best places to live. But, yeah. and, and I think that anybody and everybody should travel to experience all that stuff and then yeah. bring it back down and then share it with everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, we see how many people move away and come yeah. back, right? And they all bring something back with them. And usually some kind of creation comes out of that. And so that's always a positive thing. Yeah. So uh, appreciate your time, man. Thank you very much. Uh, Sebi, guys, we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually start solar with nothing up front, nothing down. My name is Johnny Garza. I'm with the McAllen Valley Roofing and Solar LLC. I'm the acting solar specialist here, and I'm here to make you aware of the incentives that we have. To give you an example, I had a customer come in and they wanted a roof. The roof was going to cost $12,000 to $14,000. And I offered them the choice of going solar. They said they were thinking about it, they just didn't know how to go about it. Said simply just give me your, your light bill and I'll go off of the, the usage that you've been using already in your home so I can make the system big enough to sustain your home. I also told them that I can include the roof, they wouldn't have to give me anything down. They can keep the money in the bank and I could finance it all together. Payment was literally the same or a little bit more than what they were paying for light. We have a 30-year warranty on the system and the marksmanship of the installation. So the sustainability of the system, if anything happens, for example, if we go on the roof and we damage a roof, our warranty covers that repair. So just call the number down below and Dana will answer and take care of you just like family. Hey folks, there's a pandemic, there's an epidemic, and it's sweeping across the country, and the RGV is a hot spot, and it's not COVID, it's bad credit. Bad credit can rob you of a lifetime of high interest payments, tens of thousands of dollars. It can rob you from getting that dream home or that beautiful car that you've always wanted. Don't let bad credit do that to you. Give us a call, Beretta Credit Repair. The number's on the screen. Give us a call, we're right here in the RGV. You'll be glad you did.